Hello everyone and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Monday, November 11th, 2019. On today's episode, we're going to have a spoiler-filled conversation about the fourth episode of HBO's Watchmen, entitled, If You Don't Like My Story, Write Your Own. My name is Ben Pearson, I'm the senior writer at SlashFilm.com, and I'm joined on today's episode by Slash Film writers Huai Tran Bui. Hey everyone! And Chris Evangelista. Hello folks! All right, guys, so before we dive into the whole of this episode, I wanted to read a couple emails that we got uh, specifically addressed to us, uh, this this Watchmen recap thing that we're doing on Mondays. Um, so Zach from Grand Rapids, Michigan, writes in, and I'm going to paraphrase his email here, but he basically says, uh, my question comes after I was looking at the Rotten Tomatoes score as well as the IMDb score for Watchmen. It feels like critics seem to unanimously enjoy the show at the time of writing, and I just checked it right the second as well. Uh, this The critic score on Rotten Tomatoes for the show is at 96%, but the audience score is at 42%. And Zach says, I hate to make this political, but do you think that this is a case of fans just not enjoying the quality of the show? Or do you think it may be related to the subject matter and all of the topics of race and racial injustice that the show is dealing with? It feels like Watchmen might be getting the same bad review bombardment by internet trolls that Captain Marvel received after Brie Larson's comments earlier this year. Um, I just saw that score and found it completely surprising and was wondering if any of you had noticed it as well and what your thoughts were about that. So that's from Zach uh, from Grand Rapids. Um, I, I had not noticed, I had not really paid attention to the Rotten Tomato score or the audience score or, or really the reaction beyond just reading like our coverage on the site, to be honest with you guys. But uh, what do you guys make of that? Do you think that there's, there's something to Zach's uh, question there? I mean, I think it's definitely... The, the the second point he makes that it's uh, trolls for lack of a better term getting upset that the show is dealing with uh, you know racial topics because people are dumb and they t- they don't realize the first the original Watchmen comic was political too but uh, that these are the times we live in now where people think anytime art has anything slightly political in it it's we have to shout about it and. Uh, yeah, I never, I never look at audience scores ever. I'm, I'm surprised when people do do that because I don't know. Maybe I'm just a snob, but I just don't. I don't really care what audiences think. <laughs> yeah, I guess you're not a filmmaker, so it doesn't matter to you. Um, it's for the fans. <laughs> yeah. Um, Aisha, any thoughts on that uh, along those lines? Yeah, I think that assessment is accurate. That people are trolling or sort of um, skewing the score because of their own anger about the politics and the racial politics, particularly that this show is tackling. And um, just from skimming, for example, the comments to Chris's reviews, uh, you can see a lot of that people being like, this is you know, SJW propaganda or whatever. And it's very annoying, but it's something that is easily dismissed because it's no, there's no basis to it. Yeah. I mean, that sounds like it comes straight out of the the new frontiersman, the like far right wing <laughs> magazine within the world of the show. Um, okay, so let's move on to our, our second email, which is a little bit more uh, meaty, and I'll try my best to make this uh, as concise as concise as possible. So Greg from Nashville writes in um, that he's a fan of of these episodes and the discussions. Uh, he basically says that he has read a lot of these supplemental materials uh, at Pedipedia and uh, has some thoughts on Judd's death and Keen's possible involvement in that. So he points out that one of these documents 
uh, indicates that uh, Judd comes from a long lineage of police officers. And Greg says it's uh, his grandfather, Judd's grandfather, who was a cowboy sheriff who had a 55-year career in law enforcement in Tulsa. Um, I think it might be actually be Judge uh, Judd's father, but it, I don't really think it matters very much. Anyway, the, the point is that Judd has a family member who sent a or received a letter from Senator Keene, who is uh, the guy who wrote the, the Keene Act back in the 70s that outlawed uh, vigilantism, and uh, that's the father of... Uh, the the senator keen who appears on the show so the father uh it's basically about this older generation and uh, in this pdpedia uh, bonus material section there is a letter from one of keen's ancestors to uh judd's ancestor where they basically explain the origin of that painting that uh gave the second episode of this season its title and we talked about that a little bit during that episode um it's also there's like some implication that this painting is like a totem that is handed down from leader to leader of the local chapter of the kkk and i read this pdpedia thing myself and i was trying to find that language in there i think it might be coded or it's it's very very subtle if it's in there um it doesn't explicitly mention the kkk but I can see how people would draw that conclusion. Um, anyway, uh, Greg says this means that both Gene and, uh, or I'm sorry, both Keen and Judd had family that served in an official capacity for the KKK, and their families have a history or working with dealing with one another. So this brings him uh, to two theories: Judd and Keen are both members of the KKK, and therefore the Seventh Cavalry. This is why Judd had the robe in his closet, and why he doesn't die during the White Knight. As for Keen, he thinks that he was the second shooter from Angela's flashback to the White Knight the one who doesn't get stabbed and who does not shoot her. You can read that night as a stunt to get the Defense of Police Act off the ground, which would act as one of the first few steps in getting Keene elected and into power. You need the sheriff to survive but get injured to throw off any suspicion of his involvement, and maybe they saw Angela surviving as necessary for that act to pass as well. Um, and then he, he goes on to theorize about how maybe somebody, Dr. Manhattan or Will, found out about the corruption in this area, specifically between the two families, that's been going on for generations and maybe killed Judd as a way to raise suspicion and sort of uh, shine a spotlight on that. Um, and then he, he raises this other theory, which is like everything that he just said was also true, was true, but also maybe in this case, Judd was actually working against Keen, not with him. Maybe Judd kept the KKK robes as like a family heirloom and they didn't actually belong to him, but he hid them and he was not an active member or, uh, or participant in any of these, um, the, you know, the racist activities of the KKK, but uh, maybe Keen suspects Judd is close to finding out about Keen's own involvement with this, and that's why uh, Judd ended up dying. Maybe Keen had something to do with that there. And I'll I'll go you one better, Ben. I have my own theory here. All right, is yeah, every, let's hear is it. Everyone ready? Yes. My theory yeah. is that Judd is not actually dead. <laughs> but Chris, we saw his body hanging Look. from... From a this world has already established there are clones. So <laughs> hmm. the only reason the only reason I don't think he's dead is because they made a big deal about blowing up the body, and uh, Gene Smart's character was talking about how she was going to exhume the body and to, to you know check it, and now she can't do that. And something about that, like the way they focused so much on that, makes me feel like they're setting something up to pay off later. So I don't know if it means he's not dead, but I, I just feel like there's something going on there. Hmm. 
Interesting. Mm. Yeah, I had not considered that. That. It is, that is interesting because I did notice too that like they were very adamant about not showing um, Lori Blake the body and then the blowing up the body. It seems like such a convenient uh, way to get rid of the evidence. I, I assumed it was because of him doing drugs before he died, but um, I wonder, there might be some uh, something to that theory, Chris. What do you guys make of uh, Greg's uh, notions here, maybe about Judd and Keen either being in cahoots and, and being members of the KKK themselves and, and sort of orchestrating this whole thing, or... I- I definitely think that theory is correct. I don't think Keen was the other shooter just because I don't picture him as someone like getting his hands dirty, mm-hmm. but I could definitely see that whole idea of like them staging this to put the, you know, the, the mask thing through. I could definitely see that actually paving out to be true, but I don't see that character as being someone who would like put on a mask and go shoot up a house. Right, right. Uh, all right. Well, yeah, thanks for writing those in. And you can send us more uh, emails at peter at slashfilm.com. If you have any other theories or anything that you want us to talk about, we might do that on future episodes. So, guys, let's jump into this episode. And it begins with uh, really an introduction to Lady True. And before we talk about uh, what happens in this opening scene, H.C., you had an observation about this character, right? Yeah, well, this is actually something I only learned after having watched the episode, but uh, Lady True, the name of Hong Chao's character, is actually, she shares a name with um, a third century Vietnamese female warrior who was named Lady True, um, and it was known as the Vietnamese Joan of Arc. She uh, was at the time resisting the Chinese state of Eastern Wu during its occupation of Vietnam, and um, I thought that was a really interesting uh sort of naming of the character. Uh, I don't know if it has anything to do with what her role will be in the show, but it is interesting, and it sort of goes along with um, Damon Lindelof's past with Lost and sort of naming its his characters after uh, sort of historical figures. Uh, John Locke, for example, is named after a philosopher, etc. Um, but it will. It, it's interesting if that will come into play, the sort of Lady True uh, mythic warrior um, roots. And um, there is another thing to note is that uh, the warrior Lady True was often depicted riding a white elephant, which is the same uh, animal that is on the hourglass that she whips out at the beginning of the episode. I was wondering about that. There's a couple little pieces of element, uh, elephant imagery sort of in that, I think they call it a vivarium, where she lives, that sort of domed area up in the the uh, watch, what is it called, the Millennium Clock? Um, the, I think she hands Will uh, a, a mug, uh, presumably of coffee or something like that, and that ha- also had elef- like an elephant trunk as the handle of the mug, and then there was an elephant painting up on the wall too. I was wondering about that elephant imagery, but I, I think that makes a lot of sense. Actually. I'd never heard of that um, historical figure before, but that's a, a good call, I think. Um, okay, so so the episode begins with uh, the Clark family and Lady True sort of uh, showing up very late at night, and um, it appears that she really wanted their farm because she offers them uh, this child that they could not have themselves. I'm wondering what you guys think about this, because Certainly, it's a it's a bold opening for an episode introducing this character who uh, may or may not be nefarious in some way. It certainly did not rub me as like uh, or strike me as like this character being a super trustworthy person <laughs> because she just seems to have made the decision, bef- you know, for the Clarks without really giving them much of a, a say in the matter. She she makes that joke about how 
she might, you know, you have 10 seconds to decide or else I'm going to kill the kid. And then she says, uh, you know, clearly I'm joking, but like me as an audience member, I'm like, are you really joking though? Cause it kind of seems like you're a little off, a little off there. I don't know if she actually would kill that child, but, uh, what did you guys make of this, this introduction of Lady True as a character and, um, her sort of manipulation of this farm owning family here? I mean, she's a trillionaire, and as real life has taught us, all rich people are evil. So I'm—I won't be surprised if she turns out to be evil. Um, I, I love this intro in general. It's a great intro. It's—it's it's great how it sort of like subverts the the Superman myth, which is something the the first episode did too, with you know the kid in the field and stuff like that. So there's a lot of like Superman callbacks in in this show, and even the family are they're they're the Clarks like Clark Kent and all that stuff. So I thought that was a, you know, a, a neat opening. I do think this is the weakest episode of, of the three that have aired so far or four that have aired so far. Mm-hmm. Am I the only one who thinks that? No, or? I think, I think so too. I'm what on do you the think, same AC? side too. Cause it's just, it's an episode that is just so um, perplexing. Like there's, there's, it's the most confusing of all of the episodes we've seen. And even though each episode uh, poses a lot of questions and kind of keeps building up that mystery, this one I feel like was the most frustrating in terms of like the mysteries that it, it puts up and um, is a, uh, it's just a uh, very confusing to watch. It's yeah. also like, this feels like a very much a filler episode where everything that happens here is meant to set up something else, like in a future episode. And you know, all the other episodes have that, but they also felt like they were telling a story. Whereas this episode, everything that's going on here is like, we'll get to that later. Like, uh, like we, you know, it's still a great show. And it's, you know, this, a bad episode of this show is better than most other shows in general. But this was the first one that sort of like took the wind out of the sails for the show for me. Uh, and like, I think the opening is the only thing that really worked for me. And then the rest of the episode is sort of like just setting things up. Yeah. Yeah. I really like that opening too, because another lost callback, I, it reminded me a lot of the opening of the second season of lost, uh, in the first episode of man of science, man of faith, in which you see sort of this man going about his day and it turns out he is in his head in this hatch and there's sort of like that idea of this normal sort of suburban um, mundane routine that gets interrupted by something really ominous and sinister. And uh, I like that, that they, um, that Damon Lindelof kind of played with that and um, it cr- brought that sort of a, that uh, opening back for this. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and um, actually another thing I, I wanted to bring up about the Superman sort of nods throughout is that, um, the last name of Will is Reeves, and I thought that was definitely an intentional sort of nod to Christopher Reeves. Yeah, and I think um, Raphael in, in his uh, Easter egg post pointed out that the Clark family, like Clark Kent, there's maybe another uh, another nod, another tie in there too. So um, I'll link to that. But also, I just, wanna, I just want to throw in that that uh, Will, when he was a kid, was watching the Bass Reeves movie. So oh. you could have also taken that last name from that. Yeah, oh, that's true. I think he definitely did there. Um, I, I'm wondering, do you guys think that this opening scene was a flashback? Because Watchmen does this really interesting thing with its transitions a lot of times. Sometimes it'll just cut from one location to another, but others, it, you know, there will be very specific uh, framings for its transitions. And after this sequence, when the Clark family, you know, signs over the rights to their house, uh, this 
this mysterious thing crash lands on their farm property and Lady True basically says like whatever that is it's mine we get this overhead shot it looks like a drone shot or something of the 40 acres of farmland that she just purchased and the landscape sort of crossfades into the uh, like town square area where the Dr. Manhattan phone booth thing was that Lori was talking in in the previous episode and I'm just wondering if you guys think that this might the, uh, the opening scene might have been a flashback and that crossfade was meant to indicate that um, because whatever that mysterious thing was crashed there maybe that has something to do with Dr. Manhattan maybe that has to do with a way for like a communication point for uh you know, maybe he's sending down something that allows, you know, wherever it lands, maybe that's the only place that you can communicate with him on Mars, and, and Lady True, as a trillionaire, developed this area into, uh, you know, the the um, town square that it became, or do you just think it's like a cool transition, and I'm reading way too much into that? Yeah, I, I, I had that same thought, because it does look like, you know, that crossfade makes it look like ah, that farmland turned into that parking lot, but I can't really tell if that's what they're doing here or not, because it doesn't seem like a flashback. Like, yeah. It didn't seem like a flashback until that one shot. Right. So and I then, really don't know. And also Lady True sort of looks pretty much the same throughout, so either she's ageless, and which, I mean, you know, this show has done or, weirder things. Um, or, or do we think that her, her quote-unquote daughter is a clone? Because I know I've already brought up clones, but I was getting that uh, that vibe immediately from that character. So Yeah, I think so. I think um, especially with the, the scene later in the episode where her daughter talks about the nightmare that she had. And uh, she recounts, you know, these, these men coming into a village and burning it and making them walk. And uh, she talks about how her feet still hurt, even though she's already woken up from this dream. It sounded to me like she was relaying Lady True's experiences. Um, right. and, and it was this sort of, uh, you know, passing down of like generational trauma, which is something the show has has already dealt with and, and just continues to be, you know, a major theme in, in this version of Watchmen. So um, I just want to say um, I also appreciate that this series is further sort of wrangling with the effects of the Vietnam War, um, especially since it sort of it plays a part in the original Watchmen series graphic novel um, in that, you know, the whole alternate history is that the government, the American government won the Vietnam War and that it's not the blight upon America's history that it is in this in our current reality mm -hmm. but um it's and i the depiction of the vietnam war in the original graphic novel um always sat kind of uncomfortably with me i don't know maybe it's because i am vietnamese american and um i am sort of removed from that by a generation but it's it felt to me like it was almost sort of like a backdrop for whatever uh the events that transpire in the graphic novels and i do appreciate that uh, the Watchmen series is bringing forth a Vietnamese American character who is obviously very tied and connected to the events of the Vietnam War. Um, but I do wonder, like, how it's going to, how, like, how that war will still play a factor in the series. Mm -hmm. So. Um, this is me getting a little bit personal, but I also think that it plays into the show's whole. Um, sort of grappling with racial dynamics and racial politics and the idea of um, uh, the 
sort of Asian American identity and that identity, that too being shared uh, with um, Angela Abar's character, who identifies as Vietnamese because she was uh, born and raised there. So I think it's interesting. I don't know how, what to make of it yet, mm -hmm. but I appreciate that the show is like giving us a Vietnamese American character who actually has some agency and some role uh, versus the backdrop that it played in the original graphic novel. Yeah, and, and speaking of the original graphic novel, I wanted to bring up one other thing that I, I heard on the series regular podcast. They were talking about uh, this theory that Lady True might be the comedian's daughter because they, I, I, I have not reread mm. the graphic novel in a long time, but they were talking about in the graphic novel, there's a scene depicting the comedian and Dr. Manhattan in Vietnam. The war is over. The comedian talks about how he can't wait to go home. And then he's confronted by this Vietnamese woman who is pregnant with uh, his child. And she is really mad that he's being so callous about leaving without helping her. And she slashes him in the face with some sort of sharp object and leaves the scar. And he shoots her in the chest. And Dr. Manhattan, who's standing right there, essentially like reprimands the comedian for killing this woman. But the comedian turns it back around on him and, and basically says, you know, Manhattan doesn't care about the uh, human beings at all. And if he really wanted to do something about it, he could have used his powers to stop the bullet or like turn the gun into water or something because he has so many incredible superpowers. And then the comedian leaves the room and the last we see in the comic is Dr. Manhattan standing over this woman's body with his hand on his chin, almost in this like sort of, sort of like thoughtful pose. And then the next panel is Manhattan in that exact same pose looking at the comedian's casket at the comedian's funeral. So that's sort of him remembering this other thing, but we don't know exactly what happened there. And they were sort of speculating like maybe uh, Dr. Manhattan was either moved by uh, the comedian's, um, you know, takedown of him and decided to help this woman. Maybe she didn't die right away. Maybe he helped facilitate her birth at the last second. And that's Lady True. Um, I don't know, just a, a thought and, and a way to sort of tie it back to what you're talking about, Ishii, with like the, the graphic novel's depiction of, of Vietnam and um, using that as sort of a, a backdrop for like the violence and atrocities that were committed there in, in you know, the real world and the, the graphic novel's world. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, th that seems like it may be a little bit in the weeds, but do you guys have any thoughts on that? I know, I know I'm springing that on you. You know, that character actually did occur to me when um, uh, we saw, like, uh, Lady True arrive. And I, I didn't make that connection, but I did remember that there was, like, one Vietnamese character who did die. And I, but I, yeah, I, I, that would actually make sense to me. But I remember in the episode, she says that her mom made her promise not to leave Vietnam. And I sort of thought that maybe her mom died and that like she would have survived but maybe like you said dr manhattan decided to uh save this woman yeah that's possible so um i guess before we move off of lady true there's a couple other questions i wanted to pose to you guys what do you think the real purpose of the millennium clock is i know they describe it as you know the the first wonder of the new world and how it's basically like this um undestroyable type of object um and but it seems to me like it's not just a giant watch, is it? Like, it has to have another purpose beyond just telling time. So, uh, Christy, I know you've seen, what, the first six episodes of the show? Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I guess that's maybe a minor spoiler, but do you know anything yet about, like, this thing's true purpose? I have to imagine that it would be revealed at the very end of this, the season. Yeah, I, I don't know what it is, Um I'm I'm imagining it can't be anything good. Uh, there's <laughs> just the way they're framing it makes it sound like bad news. Um, the only thing I, 
I'm, I'm hesitant to say like it has something to do with like time travel or something. I don't it's like just because there's such a big deal about, you know, clocks and time, especially in this version of the story. So, yeah, that's like a, a random guess on my part, though. I, uh, yeah, the daughter yeah. does say it tells time, but, you know, that's a pretty vague or can be a pretty vague statement in this world. So. Um, yeah, we'll have to keep our eyes on that, and I'm sure we'll learn more about that as the uh, the series continues to unfold. But um, the one other thing involving Lady True that I wanted to mention was there's this Ozymandias statue in her vivarium, and, and uh, Lori Blake and Angela Abar are standing there, and they notice it, and Lori says something about, like, why did you make him old? And uh, Lady True says, because he is old. And I thought that was interesting, because in the world of Watchmen, Adrian Veidt has been declared dead, and the world knows that he is Ozymandias. That was the thing that, you know, he, he like revealed his secret identity to the world back in the early 80s, I think. And so for for Lady True to, to speak about him in uh, the present tense and to know exactly what he looks like, even though he's been missing for years and then is now pres- presumed dead, just you know raises all sorts of other questions about like is she in cahoots with him is she the one who's imprisoning him like what is actually happening here is she working with dr manhattan in some way to to keep adrian uh contained i don't i don't know what did you guys um think about that anything it i mean it looks like jeremy Irons. so it's funny it's obvious that she is aware that he's still alive of course and that maybe she Maybe she is his captor. Um, I saw a really funny crackpot theory that's saying that he is stuck in the statue, um, which. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, yeah, I I think that she knows more than she's letting on for sure. Um, and like the closest theory I could get is that like she is his captor and he and is keeping him captive somewhere. So that's why she knows what she look what he looks like, and why she has a statue of him. And maybe that's some sort of, I don't know, Dorian Gray portrait that keeps him captive or something. Um, <laughs> maybe but, maybe uh, she's the the game warden, even though we saw that yeah. was a man with a mustache. But you never know. <laughs> maybe she was wearing a fake mustache. Yep. I mean, you can always wear a fake mustache. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so let's talk a little bit about Angela. She, After taking sort of a backseat in uh, last week's episode to Lori Blake, she you know becomes more of a, a central focus in this episode again. Um, she breaks into the Greenwood uh, Cultural Center and uh, experiences uh, her and encounters her family tree, which I thought was a really cool visual. What did you guys think of that? The acorn and uh, like the holographic family tree there. That was very yeah, cool. Yeah. It's funny because I just, I think I saw recently on Twitter, someone was talking about how they had requested acorns as props and uh, it came in like this very fancy case with like handmade acorns and i was like oh i wonder what that was for for like whatever film that was for maybe it was for Watchmen. oh yeah (laughs) um so i think you know like you guys pointed out this episode i think is the weakest of the ones that have aired so far i think it's a lot of really just questions being posed so we don't have to get into all the nitty-gritty details of the entire episode but we can't go any further without talking about lube man because what the hell was that i mean that was like (laughs) one of the coolest visuals i've seen in a long long time this guy just squirting lube all over himself and then going feet first into a storm drain where you guys i mean you must have been as taken aback by that image as i was right yeah that was hilarious i i have nothing to add to it except it was just very funny, very baffling, but I'm happy that it happened. Yes, I, I'm a, I'm, I'm Team Lube Man. I don't know who he <laughs> is or what his deal is, 
I almost want them to never tell us. Like, <laughs> like the, the last episode, Angela should be like, oh, whatever happened to Lube Man in the credits roll? Like, they, <laughs> they cut her off mid-sentence and then the credits are rolling. Um, I, yeah, you guys... he's like, um, like that Buffy episode, Restless, where Cheese Man shows up and it's just yes. like a man with yep. cheese. Never ex- is explained. Yeah, we don't need to know. It's just he's out there. Lube Man, he's out in the world. I, I do like the idea of us never finding out who he is, but I have to ask you guys, do you think it's Petey in costume? I had that thought too because he that actor is very tall and very skinny and so is Lube Man. So <laughs> I had that I had that same thought because there's a shot of him of Petey like a wide shot of him standing in Lady True's whatever warehouse and he <laughs> and I was like wow he looks really tall and thin maybe he's Lube Man so uh, it's it's possible. I just that actually don't, occurred to me too. Yeah. I just don't know what his end game was there because he was watching Angela as she threw the um, you know destroyed pieces of the wheelchair over into that train, and he's just like watching from afar, but like dressed up as Lube Man for some reason. I feel like if he if that actually was Petey, he could just be watching her, and especially since he doesn't have any sort of meaningful interaction with her, he just <laughs> slides into a sewer and escapes. Like there's. There's no reason for him to be dressed as that character. I don't know. I, I mean, I guess the mystery is. There's always of... reason to dress up as Luke Man. <laughs> That's true. Um, so, Will, uh, Angela's grandfather, wants to make sure that she received those memory pills, which might connect, I'm guessing, to Lady True's daughter's IV. Like we talked about how, you know, I, I was wondering if uh, the daughter might be experiencing uh, or reliving Lady True's experiences. And I wonder if that's why Will is going out of his way to make sure that that Angela has these pills. Because he, he said in one of the, I think the second episode, something about I, I take them and it helps me with my memory or something. So it, it seems to me like he wants her to take those pills and maybe sh- maybe it's made of the same, maybe it's just a pill form of the, the IV that uh, Lady True's daughter is, is injecting or whatever. Um so I don't know. I'm guessing Angela's going to take one of those pills in the next episode or two. Um, but I think that's all in terms of Angela's storyline that aside from, you know, uh, without getting into uh, super detail. Um, but let's talk about Adrian Vite a little bit because the we are introduced to this character in this episode uh, by him like out in this swamp and pulling babies out of the water what the hell is going on here ht what did you uh what were your first thoughts when you saw him doing this and like tossing some back too oh man he's fishing for clones and uh it was super disturbing imagery it's funny because funny is like a strange word to say it but it, it does sort of call back to the earlier scene with lady true saying if you don't um sign this paper then i'll destroy this baby and we do see babies being destroyed in this scene um just um bite just fishing through for clones that have the least deformities i'm guessing so that he can cook them in his special microwave machine um yeah it was it was very very creepy um and I don't think it has any sort of like pro-life connotations to it, but uh, <laughs> I do think that uh, it is disturbing, uh, intent- intently disturbing. Yeah, yeah. He says to, um, so he, he takes these babies and makes, uh, very quickly makes them into the new uh, Mr. Phillips and Miss Crookshanks. And he s- explains to them as they're going through their sort of like um, rapid adult phase that 
they're flawed and they have a thoughtless design. And he says, I am most definitely not your maker. I would never have burdened such pathetic creatures with the gift of life. So my understanding up to this point has been that he is the one who's creating these clones for himself, you know, as these servants who occupy his manor and help him out with all means of experiments and whatever. But it seems like that language there, I'm not your maker, I wouldn't have chosen to give you life, makes it seem like regardless of whether Adrian Veidt is involved or not, these babies are going to be there floating around under the water like somebody else is doing this. Do we have any thoughts about who is responsible or, or what might actually actually you know really be going on here yeah i don't i don't know what's going on here i do think you know this episode makes it explicitly clear that wherever he is it's not on earth because of you know the whole catapult scene which i guess we'll talk to about in a minute but it's and obviously the <laughs> the the swamp with mutated babies in it clearly isn't on earth either so i don't know I don't know where the hell he is. He just happens to be imprisoned somewhere where there are babies in, in the water. That's what are the odds? I don't know. I don't know what is going on with this, but I did. I did like the, the, the Adrian stuff this week more than I have in the other weeks, just because it's starting to slowly tell us what's going on. Like he says, like, Oh, he's been there for four years. And so, you know, it's just, it, it's just such a weird image. Like all the stuff that happens in this segment, from the water thing to the device that makes them grow up really quick to the, he, you know, he takes them into the room where he it's revealed he's murdered all the other clones. Like everything happening in this section is so friggin' weird that I can't <laughs> help but love it. Yeah. I always really enjoy his segment because it's just this mindless debauchery and it's so disturbing and so weird and gross. But um, yeah, this, this, week was especially so but yeah my theory i think is uh it's either he's either the captive of dr manhattan and he's in some special prison up in mars and dr manhattan is sort of um amusing him with various little things that he can play with like his his swamp of clones and uh his various tools that he can use to try to escape but Mm -hmm. it's more of like a means for adrian invite to um know spend his time versus actually being able to escape or he's being imprisoned by lady true because we do know she has some sort of um tools to create sort of clones at least because as we saw with the baby uh that she gives to the clarks at the beginning because if the woman wasn't able to give birth or like have um what was it her eggs weren't uh, viable mm-hmm. then it must be a clone of some sort and of course our theory that um lady true's daughter bien is a clone as well so it's either lady true or dr manhattan who are keeping him captive is my big two th- my two big theories yeah i think so too and i think this is the first episode that that Vite actually explicitly says that he is a prisoner like i you know there was also no, he, he no, said he that last episode. oh he did okay all right yeah yeah i was wondering you know because in, in the very beginning it's like he's he's the world's smartest man the, the smartest man in the world and and i was wondering if at any point he may have like this may have been like a self-imposed kind of thing where he it's like a giant intellectual exercise like he imprisons himself and is working on a way an elaborate way to escape just as like a a way to keep his mind sharp or something um you know faking his death and the whole deal but yeah i guess last week and then this week he he sort of um you know says it with a little bit more oomph like you know i'm i'm miserable here i'm being imprisoned and i'm i'm actively trying to get out of this and and yes he he launches these slaughtered bodies into the sky with this catapult 
And it's weird because they just sort of disappear once they hit a certain point in the sky. It's not like they disappear behind a specific cloud or something. It's almost like they just, uh, you know, they're there one second and then they're not another second. And yes, there's obviously a lot of mystery going on here. We don't know. I don't think any of us have the answers here, but I do wonder if you guys think that the, um, the, what would you call it, a meteorite or whatever crash lands in the Clark's backyard at the beginning is one of these potentially frozen bodies of these uh, these slaughtered clone people that uh, that Adrian is is messing with? Do you think that he's able to launch them all the way from wherever he is, you know, down to, presumably down to Earth somewhere? I hadn't thought of that just because it's like he's using a catapult. <laughs> that would, <laughs> that'd be like a really powerful catapult. Really well. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. That's I don't know what's happening yeah. on this show. <laughs> yeah, I just assumed that it they um, hit some sort of force field and then like disintegrate or something, or or like this. I assumed like the sky is like a hologram and they're like mm. flying through the hologram into kind of like Wonder Woman's island where it looks like there's nothing there and then they end up on the island. Yeah. That's what I was imagining it as. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's just what a weird. What a weird segment of the show. Um, and and also, like, the... So I think it was in the last episode, correct me if I'm wrong, where uh, we see um, Adrian Veidt, like, uh, suit up one of the Mr. Phillipses and launch him, and then the camera cuts back to him, and we see that his body has been frozen and he's dead, but, like, he has the body right there. So it's like he's landed exactly back at the launch point, and the way that this the catapult plays out in this uh, episode, it's like there's no way that he would ever be able to you know, retrieve that body. So it's almost like he's launching it directly at like a giant trampoline in the sky that's sending it right back to him or something. I don't know how he's did found he, did that he body launch the first him though? Time. We don't really because, see what yeah. happened. So I'm yeah, guessing because we see him put him in the suit, but then we don't see any sort of launch. Hmm. So oh. I, there must have been something else that he used to try and send him into space. But I don't know. I don't think it was the catapult, but. I don't know. Hmm. Yeah, I'll have to go back and rewatch that. I wonder, or maybe like just something within the suit itself malfunctioned because I think he hooked mm-hmm. up some sort of like air uh, thing to the back of the suit. So maybe, um, maybe the launch never happened at all, and it was just a malfunction in the suit, and he was really mad about that. So, uh, or I wonder if like he left him out at night because we never do see Adrian bite. Oh, wait, that's a lie. We just saw him this episode out at night in the yeah. swamp, mm. and I was like, maybe the environment thins or something, and then like he can't. Um, breathe at night, but that that's a, a theory that is debunked this week. <laughs> um, all right, so let's get into uh, a crackpot corner, just uh, chaos <laughs> that we've we've heard and, and maybe wild theories and stuff that uh, I don't know if you guys have found anything that you might be able to add to this section or not, but um, I was speaking with David Chen about this on a little video recap sort of review thing that we were doing last night, and he posited this theory that he saw on Twitter that uh, Cal... Angela's wife, or I'm sorry, Angela's husband, might actually be Dr. Manhattan. And I was completely baffled by this, but the the evidence that sort of uh, conceivably points to this would be they refer to uh, Cal having an accident at some point and uh, him not telling uh, FBI agent Lori Blake about that. There's the way that he talks to the kids in this episode about death, which is very sort of like 
removed and uh, a little bit calculated and and cold and and not uh, super empathetic. Um, and then there's the idea that he survived the White Knight. He's like one of I think three survivors alongside Judd and Angela of the White Knight, but we never saw exactly what happened to him there. So um, I think Cal was one of the people early on in the season who Cal and Will both were talking about the limitations of Dr. Manhattan's powers and that he could not actually, um, you know, uh, present himself in a human form. Um, and, but, you know, just because we've never seen him, we've, we've never seen him do that in the graphic novel or you know, this show so far doesn't necessarily mean that he's incapable of doing it. So, uh, I don't know. This is certainly uh, a, a crackpot uh, theory, but, uh, Chris, <laughs> from your groan, I, I take it you don't really buy into this one too much. I definitely think there's something going on with Cal that we have, we don't know yet. There's more to that character than meets the eye, but there's, I am 99.99999% sure he is not Dr. Manhattan because also... I just think that would be really dumb, <laughs> but I just, I don't think that's, that's what's going on. It would also be really weird. Like why is Dr. Manhattan like <laughs> pretending to be some random guy living with Angela? It just seems very strange. I don't know. Even for this show, it seems too strange. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the only thing I can think of is like Dr. Manhattan has a very unique relationship with time. And he is able to see, sort of see all things at once, or, or I think that's the implication in the graphic novel anyway. So maybe he knows that Angela is important and, and knows that he would have to like ingratiate himself in her life somehow. I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm certainly stretching to try to meet, uh, to try to help out a theory that I'm not even fully convinced in. So um, yeah, uh, if anybody has any other uh, compelling evidence about why Cal might actually be Dr. Manhattan in disguise, please send us an email. Let us know what you think about that. Um, I, this isn't really much of a, a theory or anything, just a talking point that we haven't discussed yet, but Will can walk. He, he reveals at the end of this episode that he can get up out of that wheelchair and, and just walk around. He says, my feet are fine. Um, what do you guys think about that? Is there anything, any information that we have that would allow us to form any sort of theories or is it all just, you know, one after another of uh, moments in this episode where it's presenting or asking more questions that we can't answer yet. Um, HD, do you have any, well, any thoughts on that? Well, it does lend to the evidence that he did string up Judd and kill him. So I guess that's sort of a reveal in that sense. Yeah, that's um, true. But yeah, I don't really know what, um what else he's up to who he seems to be playing some sort of game, both with Angela and with uh, lady true. And we talk about the, the two of them talk about um some, picking sides in some sort of thing. I can't remember the exact dialogue, but um, she was frustrated with him sort of uh, wavering and, and playing this mind game with Angela. Mm -hmm. um, but he says something along the lines of, you know, where I stand or something. Yeah, yeah. And it's all very mysterious. And, and that was the other question that I wanted to ask you guys. Like, is Lady True aligned with Dr. Manhattan somehow? Because like I mentioned, Dr. Manhattan has this unique relationship with time. Um, and uh, he will asks Lady True, um, you know, like how much longer until their plan comes to fruition? And she pauses for a second and says three days. Like it's almost like she has like the, like a supernatural relationship with time. And obviously they're standing in this millennium clock and that, you know, time is, is uh, a looming thing that's sort of hanging over this entire show at this point. Um, Lady True also knew exactly when that thing was going to crash in the, the Clark's backyard because, you know, she had this three minute hourglass and and basically got that deal done 
to where to where she owned that property you know seconds before this thing crash landed and so she made sure that she locked that down so it was hers so i don't know if just because of dr manhattan's relationship with time i'm wondering if there's some sort of connection there between him and, and lady true but um i don't know if that's answerable at this point or if you guys have any other um pieces of uh you know shards of information to add to that crackpot theory at all no, I, I don't yeah. know. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it seems like it could be a good theory, but I, I have no idea. Again, it's just there's just so many questions floating around and this whole episode was just one big enigma. Yeah, certainly. Um, the last thing was, uh, you know, I, I wondered if uh, maybe the bo- the bodies being launched through the sky resulted in or, or sort of transformed into that meteor that crashed down. Um, do you guys have any any other thoughts about what that could be, um, that meteor? Like, it's not just a random meteor, because Lady True knows where it's coming and when it's coming. So any thoughts about what that might have been? Babies. No. <laughs> Babies. <laughs> Babies and no. All right. I like it. Uh, well, yeah, I think that's a, a good place to end this episode. Um, and again, yeah, please send us an email if you have any other uh, talking points or theories or, or um, yeah, you know, harebrained or not, uh, crackpot or not. We'd love to hear what you guys have to have to say about that. So you can email us at peter at slashfilm.com. Um, I guess before we go, let's tell people where they can find more of our work online. Uh, HG, let's start with you. Uh, you can find me writing every day at SlashFilm.com, and I'm on Twitter at HTranBooey. And HT, you're actually going to be gone for the next few weeks, right? You're going on vacation? Yeah, so you'll you'll be missing me from the next three episodes of this Watchmen spoiler podcast. Um, and um, I'm sure you'll find some a suitable replacement for me. But uh, <laughs> if you guys are, are going to miss my bad puns, then I will be gone. <laughs> yeah, we'll have to let Saigons be Saigons. When, ah. <laughs> that one. Um, and you're actually going to Vietnam, right? I am. Okay, yeah, yeah, it's... Um, been about 15 years since I first went to Vietnam and so it's um yeah it'll be exciting to go back awesome well we look forward to having you back for the last I think two episodes of this uh, recap podcast as uh, Watchmen comes to an end um, Chris where can people find more of your work online wow what are the odds I am also going to Vietnam for no you're not <laughs> <laughs> no I'm not that's a lie that would be incredible <laughs> No, uh, I'm at SlashFilm.com, and I'm on Twitter at SeaEvangelista413. You can find me writing at SlashFilm.com as well. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Ben Pears, and you can find more about Watchmen at SlashFilm.com and linked inside the show notes of this episode. SlashFilm Daily is published every weekday, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site, like Chris's review and our Easter eggs. Um, I'll, I'll link all of that in the show notes. Uh, you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. And don't forget to rate and review the show on iTunes. Tell your friends about it. Spread the word any way you can. Thank you so much for listening, and we will talk to you tomorrow.